Hello and welcome to Employment Law Matters. This is Season 6, Episode 2, and it's the 4th of April 2023. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett, a member of Outer Temple Chambers, presenter of the Legal Hour on LBC Radio, and founder of the HR Inner Circle. In this season, I'm picking my favourite episodes from the series of 30 employment webinars I ran in 2021, where a leading employment lawyer answered questions over Zoom from hundreds of solicitors and HR professionals. I've not only picked my favourite episodes, but I've selected the best half dozen questions and answers from that episode for you. This week, we're focusing on mental health in the workplace, and I'm playing extracts from a webinar with Jodie Hill of Thrive Law. Some of the things you'll learn include how to reconcile the tension between poor performance and looking after employees' mental health, how to become a mental health first aider, and whether an occupational health report is better than a GP report. Before I turn to Laura, spring is now here, and with spring comes the time-honoured tradition of spring cleaning. And if you're taking this opportunity to declutter and reorganise at home, well, why not apply the same to your job? I did a straw poll recently. I asked some HR professionals who are in the HR inner circle what they do if they had to conduct an HR spring clean. And they told me they'd declutter their physical workspace, reorganise their files, their databases, their paperwork to streamline how they operate, and they'd review their policies and procedures to identify anything outdated or ineffective. For me, the last one is the most important one because employment law changes all the time. By taking the time to review and update HR policies, you create a workplace that's fair and inclusive, which benefits both your employees and your company. So my challenge to you for this week is to review your HR policies and see if they need a refresh. Now, mental health in the workplace. Jody Hill originally trained as a barrister and then cross-qualified as a solicitor. In 2018, she became the founder and the managing partner of multi-award winning Thrive Law. Jody also has a passion for helping to encourage understanding around mental health and has a strong desire to help end stigma surrounding the subject to create a happier, healthier workforce. This passion can be seen in her campaign, One Mind, hashtag One Mind, to bring mental health to the top of the business agenda. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. As a manager or somebody in HR, if you're told by someone that an employee is struggling with their mental health, what should you do? So if you're the manager, in fact, you don't even have to be a manager. If you're anyone within the workplace and you actually suspect that someone is struggling, you should approach that individual, especially uh, if you know them personally. If you are their manager, it would be sensible to arrange a one-to-one. But ultimately, what you're trying to do is create a safe place in which you want that individual to open up about their condition. Now, if you haven't got any information other than you just know, then obviously it's for that individual to share that information with you. So you can ask some kind of probing questions. You can ask them 
about their behaviours or any information that you've been given from other people, provided they've said that you can obviously pass that information on. But essentially, in order to create that safe environment, um, you do need to already have, in my view, quite an open culture. So it really does depend on the, on the workplace. But ultimately, I would I would be advocating for you to create a safe place for that individual to open up first, then explore if there's any reasonable adjustments for them if it's affecting their workplace. So it really depends what comes out of that conversation as to where it goes next so i'm going to ask you for a top tips um uh, that you've got what are the three things that every company whether big or small should have in place to support an employee's mental health Sure. Well, I think the first the first thing is actually the culture, and I think that's a really difficult thing to, to say as a top tip. But essentially, it's it is a, it's a key element in creating a positive place where people can be open. So, if you don't have a positive work culture where there's a genuine open door policy where people genuinely know that if they're struggling, they can go to their manager or, or there's a designated person in the workplace to go to, then it's going to be really difficult to implement any effective or or, or meaningful initiatives throughout throughout the organization because people don't feel engaged so that's the first thing the second thing I would actually advocate mental health first aiders I think they are really really helpful in in an employment context for two reasons the first reason would be more from a proactive perspective so you know you can have those mental health first aiders who generally have a deeper understanding of conditions on some of your committees they can help with HR but they can also help with any initiatives that you're running because they're generally people who volunteered at all levels and can actually give you a bit of insight into what individuals might be wanting, but also they have a better understanding of of mental health conditions. So mental health first aid is from a proactive sense, but also in a reactive sense where there's a crisis. And we are seeing so many more people, unfortunately, taking their lives at work. And mental health first aid is those people who can, as a physical first aider would with an emergency at work physically, a mental health first aider would help out in that situation. They would they would get that individual to a safe place. They would be able to support them in that immediate crisis moment and signpost them and get emergency services there to help them. The other thing what I would say is a final um, as a final piece. I'm thinking now, but you asked for three. I'd say it would have to be the mental health risk assessments that I talked uh, that you mentioned before the One Mind campaign. Now it is something I'm personally very passionate about, but mainly because I've seen it work so well in organisations. And essentially what it is, is asking individuals what their problems are at the moment, but not in, a, not in an invasive way, using technology so that it's anonymous and actually trying to understand what people need in terms of support, but also identifying risks. So where someone might, might be already suffering with either depression or anxiety or another condition, and they might be either at risk to themselves or to others. So it's really looking in, a, it helps look from a proactive analysis but also prevent you've got the whole preventative piece but actually if there is a risk can you put anything in place to support those individuals and that might be training it might be um, it might be an individual risk assessment on that person as well as the organization but essentially what we're doing is moving away from the tick box approach that a lot of organizations have by just putting people on training and actually looking at it more proactively and more preventatively uh, when it comes to the wider initiative within the workplace. Presumably, Jodie Hill, something like that either cannot be anonymous or it has to rely on people being willing to volunteer information about their mental health and personal circumstances. 
Yeah, so so there is a there's, there's organisations who offer these these assessments now, and you can either do it anonymously, where the individuals actually, in my experience, opens up more. But what you get as in terms of the data, it's a data driven project. Is that data drives the organisation in terms of their initiatives rather than the individual risk assessments? The individual gets a self care report, and that report then identifies to them if they're at risk and who to go to. But the manager doesn't see it. Now the other way you can do it is an individual risk assessment where you would obviously have to have that conversation directly with the individual to understand and they would obviously have to volunteer that information to their manager. Uh, Last question from me before we move to the questions from everybody else. There's a tension in the workplace often between managing performance Mm -hmm. and managing somebody's mental health. How do you reconcile that tension? Yeah, it's a difficult one. And I think, you know, you've got to deal with the, in my view, I would deal with the mental health problem first, make sure that that person is is safe, make sure that they have the right support in place in the workplace, but also making sure that they they know exactly what they need to be doing within their role and then separately dealing with the performance issues because you've already put the adjustments in place. Now, it may be that part of your process in terms of it might be a long-term sickness absence process, a capability process, you may need to adjust those processes for the disability depending on on whether that's reasonable or not. But ultimately, balancing the needs of the organisation with the mental health of the individual is a really difficult one and it's taken on very much by a case-by-case basis in my view. Radar is a specialist commercial and litigation law firm dedicated to helping businesses navigate their risk, including employment issues. Radar's legal expertise and innovative digital tools focus on educating businesses before problems happen. Book your free 30-minute employment and HR consultation today or subscribe to their monthly newsletter at Radar, that's R-R-A-D-A-R, radar.com slash employment. Another anonymous attendee asks, a senior manager has bipolar disorder which often causes them to behave in a confrontational or aggressive way to the point where the well-being of other staff is being impacted. Mm-hmm. Where would we stand when disciplining this employee for unacceptable behaviours? Are, expe- are we expected to just accept that the behaviour is related to mental illness? And the anonymous attendee goes on to add that staff don't know about their condition because the person's declined for it to be shared. Yeah, that's a really, really difficult one to manage because ultimately you're managing the impact of the condition on other people. And and I've I've had to do this, you know, advise on these issues many, many times. And ultimately, I would actually go back a step further and understand what is that individual doing to manage their own mental health condition and actually try to understand what they've got in place. What have they got in their toolbox to help them deal with the way that it manifests in the workplace? And do they understand the impact that it's having on the team? Now, it may be that there's nothing they can do about that. And actually, that's then a decision for the organisation to take in terms of looking at, well, what's the impact moving forward on the rest of the team? Is everyone going to leave because of it? You know, so it's, it's balancing the impact of the, of the rest of the team with the individual. But let's not forget that the individual has a protected characteristic. So that's where you need to be really careful. Now, if it's causing a lot of problems um, and the individual is not willing to do anything um, in terms of supporting themselves. So I, I don't know, give an example example that we often find is that 
people don't want to disclose it, they don't want any help, they don't want to go to the doctors, they don't want medication, then I think it could be reasonable to then take further action um, if their conduct is having a negative impact on everyone else. But if they are trying to manage it and they are in a process and they are going through therapy, um, then again, it's just balancing where that individual is and what they're actively doing to support themselves and then balancing that with the wider impact on the rest of the team. I hope that helps. I think I've answered it. <laughs> I, I think you have. Thank you. Um, a question from Sue Apps. Should occupational health referrals for mental health conditions be treated any differently from referrals for physical conditions? And Sue goes on to say, we find all uh, occupational health experts really do is repeat what the employee is telling them mm. so it doesn't take our client much further. I find that that's, that's so common with mental health. And I think the best solution that I've found is actually finding occupational health therapists that deal with mental health conditions, because what they can do is have a really deeper understanding of how that condition might be manifesting for the individual and make some sensible suggestions in terms of adapting their workplace. Now, there are, there are lots of organisations online that you can um, find, but I found a, an organisation recently called Simply People, where you could find someone with a specialist. And I found that that was really, really helpful rather than just a general generalist because of the nature of the condition try to go a bit deeper into the background of the of the therapist that you're referring to them to karen asks should performance management processes be paused if an employee is off sick due to a stress or anxiety or depression related condition so do you put performance management on hold if someone's got mental health issues well, I, to be honest, I think the answer is it depends. It depends on how long they're off sick for, what the performance issues are, and whether putting the actual process on pause is actually because that is a reasonable adjustment that you want to make to allow them to get better to engage with the process. Or is it that they've simply been on long-term sick for, I don't know, a year, and actually they had poor performance prior to that, and they don't look like they're coming back. So if, in my view, it does depend on where that person is in the sickness process and what the poor performance was, whether it was linked to the mental health condition or not um, and actually whether or not you could use that as a as a as a reasonable adjustment in itself by pausing it to allow them to engage in the process uh, an anonymous attendee asks an employee's been off work with stress and anxiety for three months we've tried to engage with the employee multiple times but they're ignoring calls and emails a friend at work's been in touch with them so we know they're okay in inverted commas but they won't engage with hr or management what steps should we take Again, a difficult one when you can't force someone um, to actually engage with you. Now, this is where your policies, in my view, are, are really helpful. If you've got a clear long-term sickness absence policy in terms of touch points, when you will uh, ha either have things like welfare meetings or keeping in touch days whilst they're off, that can be really, really helpful because it manages the expectations from both the employer's side and the employee's side. Now, if you've already got, if, by the sounds of it, they might already be off. And if that's the case and you don't have this process um, set out, it's still helpful to try and reach out to the individual on a welfare basis to ask how they're getting on and generally just touching base with them in a non-work related so it's not about make sure it's not about work or, or a particular job or anything other than their welfare but yeah I do, I do think it is a really difficult one because ultimately you can't you can't force them to contact you especially if if part of their recovery process is actually them not speaking to people they just need that time so yeah, those policies can be helpful, but if you don't already have the policies, do do try and reach out to them in a, in a very conciliatory manner in, in a welfare setting. Anonymous attendee, when would you use occupational health versus a GP report? 
Yeah, I mean, again, it does depend. I think occupational health are really helpful if they're a specialist. Um, I do find in my experience that GPs have tended to just say more what the employee has told them. An employee, if you are going to use a GP or, or occupational health, therapist I think it's more about the letter that you write to them as the employer so actually asking the right questions what is it that you want from them if you're wanting to understand that if they meet the definition of disability um, are you asking the right types of questions are you asking about reasonable adjustments in which case I think probably an occupational therapist is the, is the better person um, so it does depend on what, what information you're trying to to elicit and actually what the what condition the individual has and who's treating them because again if their GP isn't treating them but a psychiatrist is the GP might not know very much so pick your expert depending on on who they're engaging with you're watching jody hill from thrive law who's with us for another 20 minutes or so to answer your questions on mental health in the workplace and we have 35 unanswered questions let's see how many we can get through quick fire <laughs> how far is an employer expected to go when an employee suddenly claims they have a mental health issue yet refuses to agree for a medical report from either their gp or occupational health well Often, often what I actually find is people don't tell that it will seem sudden. It will seem sudden, regardless of whether it is actually sudden for that individual. Now, if they if they're unwilling to engage, in my view, you can only tell you can tell them that you can only deal with the information you've got in front of you. So as an employer, I don't think it's, you know, you can only deal with the information you've been given. And if they're unwilling to engage in that process, then just make it clear to them, whatever the process is, whether it's disciplinary or or, um, or a capability issue, perhaps make them clear what the consequences are and encourage them to engage in actually seeing a medical practitioner so that you can either support them or understand at, at the very least what the impact of their condition is on their ability to do their job. Quick interruption from me. I'll only be 15 seconds. Two requests, please. Number one, if you've got any friends or colleagues who might benefit from subscribing to this podcast, please send them the link. Go.danielbarnett.com slash subscribe. Second of all, please do leave a review on whatever podcast software or system you use. It does make all the difference. Thanks. Now back to the episode. Question from Gillian Howard. Gillian, hello. Um, you've gone quiet in the last few days, but delighted to have you back. <laughs> if the employee fails or refuses to be medication compliant and continues to behave in an unacceptable manner or fails to perform their role to the standards you require, what can an employer do? So is, is, as Gillian's essentially asking, is it misconduct or a factor you can take into account if an employee doesn't take their medication? I suppose it depends why they're not taking the medication. If they've been, if if they're actively not taking it and they've been prescribed and told that they they should be taking it, then then potentially it could be a misconduct issue. But I think it's more, it, for me, it's more of a capability issue because it seems. Well, I suppose, I suppose it it depends why, doesn't it? And I think ultimately balancing that the misconduct and whether it's misconduct or performance can be a real challenge. I've actually come across this in practice a few times. And the way that we've dealt with it is that the individual has been, has, has basically been given an ultimatum as to whether or not that, whether or not they want to um, continue to be uh, in that particular role. Or, or for example, if they were, if they're not taking the medication, why aren't they taking it and understanding the reasons behind it rather than simply just going straight to, well, you're not taking it. So you're being dismissed. It's understanding the reasons behind it and giving them an ultimatum. Myra Turek, um, hi Myra, says an employee might not recognise they have a mental health issue, but the manager might suspect they do, such as uh, being bipolar. 
How do you address that if when they're spoken to about the issue, they deny anything untoward? And just forgive me, it's getting dark where I am, so I'm just going to turn some more lights on, but do carry on. That's fine. I think I think that's it. In my view, it's a difficult one to approach because you can't, as an employer, diagnose someone. You're not, that's not your job. Your job is not to say, I believe you have a condition or, or make any assumptions about what the condition might be. All you can do is address the issues that you have. And if they're, if they're saying that they don't have a condition, then in my view, they're not necessarily covered by the Equality Act. You have no knowledge of a condition or, or the impact. Now, I would explore that with them first. And it's a difficult conversation to have and nobody likes having those difficult conversations, but you do need to explore it in a safe environment where they feel that they can open up. If they're still refusing to engage in that and saying, no, there isn't anything wrong, then I would deal with it in a way that you would ordinarily deal with a performance or misconduct issue. Breeden Consulting provides small and medium businesses with the breadth of HR support usually enjoyed by large corporates. So if you want practical and commercially focused HR support, or if you're an HR professional looking for an opportunity to capitalise on your experience by joining a great team, visit www.breedenconsulting, that's B-R-E-E-D-O-N, breedenconsulting.co.uk. Robert asks, is it discriminatory to question a job applicant about their mental health, to question a previous employer about the job applicant's mental health, or to decline to employ them if it appears likely they'll be off sick with mental health problems once they're taken on? Yeah, I, th- I do. I do think that that, um, in my view, I do think that would be discriminatory. I think ultimately, the only reason why you should be asking for pe- details about people's mental health is if they need support as a reasonable adjustment in that interview process. Um, if you're choosing not to take them on, and that mental health condition amounts to a disability, that could potentially give rise to uh, to a claim. So, yeah, I do think it would be discriminatory to act in that way. Uh, good question from Pam Dosange. Pam, I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing your surname correctly. How do you become a mental health first aider? Cool. So Mental Health First Aid England, uh, there are absolutely loads of instructors. All you need to go is onto their website. You can find someone either near you or what you can also do is do it virtually now. So you don't have to physically do it in person, especially helpful if you've got an organisation who's split across several offices. So you don't have to bring everybody into the same office. You can carry out the, t- it's a two day course. We actually do it at Thrive. We deliver the training at Thrive, but there are absolutely loads of providers across the whole of the UK. They do have to be MHF accredited so just double check that they are actually accredited from and when I say MHFA it's Mental Health First Aid England and organisations can actually engage from other countries into the MHFA England um, scheme as well the person becomes a, a qualified first aider and then three years later has to do a refresher so yeah if you go on their website there's loads of information Mike Klein asks, given the chance, I imagine we would like all managers or companies to undergo good mental health at work training. Mm. Assuming that situation isn't prevalent, what simple messages would you recommend companies and managers think about relating to mental health in the workplace? Simple messages. Hmm. I think it'd have to go back to the culture piece and actually are are you are you the kind of manager that someone could open up to you know if the, if you say there's an open door policy 
do you genuinely have your obviously virtual door open but you know at the moment what we're finding is that people say and do things and don't follow through with them so leading by example and actually following through with what you say you're going to do is half of the battle when it comes to being a manager I've certainly found that leading by example really opens up the door and people are so much more open with me uh, because I'm open about my own um, struggles with my mental health so I think it is really it starts with us as, as people and actually we don't you don't need mental health training to actually follow through with what you say you're going to do. And if you say you're going to support someone with reasonable adjustments, follow that up. That was Jodie Hill from Thrive Law. Join me next Tuesday, the 11th of April, when I'll be bringing you highlights from my webinar with Adam Solomon, KC, in which he answers questions on restrictive covenants. Have a great Easter weekend and thank you for listening. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.